Parashat Vayechi. We are about to finish Sefer Breshit. Um, we've gone through Sefer Breshit now. Uh, hopefully Sefer Breshit has gone through us. We're getting ready for Shmot. It's not an accident that as we enter the Sefer where the Jewish people become enslaved, we're going to be visiting one of the darkest places in the world. Right? You'll see what I mean. The boys in Israel are going to be visiting some pretty dark places. If you've never been to the museum uh, and heard the story of Akko, it's a difficult story. Standing at the gallows there is not a simple thing to do. If you did this on some summer tour, it's not the same as when you're 18 years old and you can appreciate it. We're going to have an intense week and a half. Parashat Vayechi. So I want to tell you an amazing story. When I went to, um, uh, I was in Florida on Shlichut for three years. And I didn't know anybody in Florida. Okay, and it's a longer story how we got there, what we were doing there. I was working for Israelite. But uh, I used to give, um, uh, uh, you know, regular shirim in the community. Gave a weekly kiddush shir, um, you know. And one night, uh, one, I think Shabbos, I, they asked me to give the drush on Shabbos morning. Shul, I gave a drush or, uh, I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was a weeknight. And a guy comes over to me at the end of the shir, I'm outside the show, right? He comes over to me. And he says, you know, there was an awesome shear or whatever it might be. I just want to tell you how much I'm drawing. Oh, you know, what's your name? He says, oh, my name is Yuval Moed. I said, Moed? That's a pretty unique name. He said, well, you know, my grandmother was a Moed. We figured out that we were like third cousins. Like, not like distant, distant. Like his great-grandparent and my great-grandparent were brother and sister. It's not that far, right? So I didn't have any other relatives there. And uh, we started to get very close. Every Sunday we would get together, you know. And um, I think partly because we interacted over those three years, they ended up deciding a year or two after we left Florida, they came to Israel, they now live in Israel, they made Aliyah, their kids have been through the army, etc. So you never know what one shir can do. But um, we were once at their house, and I got to meet um, his wife's, Elise Moed's father. And I want to tell you one of the more incredible stories I've heard. His name uh, was Vernon Leopold. Uh, really special guy, and um, he told me the following story, the first time we met or the second time we met. He was, uh, grew up in Germany, and his parents saw what was coming. They understood that things were getting bad. They didn't quite know how bad, but they realized that for a Jewish kid, and he looked like the Jewish kid slash geek, I mean, he was like an Ein, you know, Poindexter kind of guy, um, Walking around in Nazi Germany was not a healthy thing to do. So they managed to get him sent on a kinder transport to, I think, to England, and eventually he made his way to America. Okay? And he got out. Now, he was a German Jewish kid who barely knew English, but he was very, very bright. So he eventually got into a good university. I believe it was Cornell, but I could be wrong. And um, he was studying, you know, computer sciences, whatever he was doing. Now, they had no money. His parents were in Germany. His parents got out. I don't remember the whole story of his family. And um, so how did you get to a good university and succeed if you were bright? You got some scholarship from being bright. How did you, how did you save the rest of the tuition? Anybody know? What do you do? You're in America. It's the late 30s, early 40s. ROTC. You join the army. You join an army program. And what that means is that in the summers, on your break, you do army training. Now, we're not talking about, you know, the Green Berets, right? He's talking about like the Poindexter group. You know, like they didn't even imagine that they would ever go anywhere. 
You just did ROTC and you did some training and you were a soldier and if you were lucky you got chosen to be an officer or whatever. You did one, you know, one month in the summer you did basic training the next year you did signals court training. Like whatever it was. And they weren't supposed to go anywhere. That was the deal. You would be the guys who, you know, they brought them to a college campus when they were arrived. You know what I mean? And that all worked, right? They chained, trained in some horrible, miserable camp, Lejeune. I don't remember where it was. And that all worked until 1944. What major event happened in the summer of 1944? No. Pearl Harbor was 1941. Losers, December 7th. No, this is 1944. 1944 was Normandy. It was D-Day. The U.S. joined the war in 1941. In the summer of 1944, anybody know the date of Operation Overlord? June 6, 1944. June 6, 1944, and actually one of the few movies that I would actually recommend, I, I still think it's Bittelsmann, but it's a higher Madrega of Bittelsmann, is uh, Saving Private Ryan. Um, I actually had the privilege to speak to someone who was at D-Day, who had seen that movie, and told him that that was the most accurate depiction of what happened that day, as much as we can ever understand. Um, tens and tens and tens of thousands of American soldiers died and were wounded at D-Day. And what they thought would be a slow process quickly tied up whole armies in Germany, in France, in Italy. And all of a sudden, the, you know, the Nazis weren't surrendering in a hurry. I mean, the war didn't end for almost a year. So they needed manpower. So these boys suddenly found out that they were being shipped out. And they got placed on a troop transport and they were shipped out to Belgium. And they ended up in Belgium in December, November, December of 1944. Okay? Now it happened to be that the area of Belgium uh, called the Ardennes, uh, mountains, forest area um, in sort of central Belgium, was a very quiet zone. And the way he described it to me, right, there was, um, you know, nothing going on. It was bitter cold. They had foxholes in the snow, right, uh, freezing. So your biggest worry was frostbite, okay? And they had all sorts of, you know, they knew that they were fighting the retreating Germans. And one of his great fears was that he should never be captured by the Germans. Why was he terrified of being captured by the Germans? Because he was a Jew. And his name was Vernon Leopold. And if you had a poster of a guy who looks like a Jew, it's this guy. He mamish looked Jewish with the glasses and the, the whole gazette, right? Now he had one unique feature, this Vernon Leopold. He had massive feet. He had size 13 boots. And the way the U.S. Army works, there's just not that many people with size 13 boots. So when they requisition boots for the unit, they have a lot of size 8s, 9s, 10s, maybe 11s. 13, there's like one pair. Because nobody has 13 boots. It happens to be that in his battalion, the battalion commander has huge feet. So who got the size 13 boots? The battalion commander. So he ended up with boots that were too small. Now what happens when you have boots that are too small? You start getting blisters. Right? And, you know, it's not like today. You're not going to go to, like, the foot sole and figure it out. So what do you do if you're getting blisters in your boots and you're, you know, not thinking? You cut a hole at the end of your boots. Cut a hole at the end of your boots. Your boots' feet can breathe. It helps with the blisters. What's the problem? Frostbite. So he begins to get frostbite. He has terrible blisters. Now he's getting frostbite. So one day, there's, like, nothing going on. So the company commander, right, they have responsibility. They have to take guys to sick hall. Um, says to him, you know, you have the frostbite, whatever, we can't fix you unless you go, you got to come to the, 
you know, he was complaining that he was in a lot of pain. And uh, when they looked at his feet, they realized it was serious. So they decided to take him to the company medic. So the medic looks at this. He says, this is above my pay grade. He says, I got to take you to like battalion headquarters. They've got like a proper, you know, um, <coughs> medical place. They bring him to battalion headquarters. The battalion doctor looks at this and he says, this is above my pay grade. You actually need surgery. This is really serious. Like if you don't take care of this, you could lose your feet. You could lose your toes, right? So we're sending you to brigade headquarters. Now he didn't want to go to brigade headquarters because you're dealing with the U.S. Army long before there are computers and cell phones. And the thing that keeps you going in the Army is that with your guys, you're with your unit. And he starts to worry. Like if he gets and they move his unit, he'll end up, they'll throw him into some other unit and he doesn't know those guys and it's depressing enough to be so far at home. But he doesn't have a choice. They give him an order. You're going to brigade headquarters. So he goes to brigade headquarters, right? At brigade headquarters, they tell him that you need serious surgery and the medical equipment here is not up to par. They put him on a train. He doesn't want to do this, but he has no choice. They put him on a train and they send him off to Paris. And in Paris, Mehmet, they take care of him. And eventually he's like uh, Mitupal, but he gets sent to another unit. And eventually, you know, they forget about him. And he can never get back to his unit. And eventually, you know, his, his wounds are so bad that they give him a discharge because he can't do anything. His, his feet are messed up. So he gets a desk job and then he's discharged and he ends up heading back to America. Why was this a significant event in his life? Because on that same day, I believe it was December 25th, um, 1944, the reason that the area that he was in was such a quiet zone was because the Nazis were trying to lull the Americans into a full sense of security. And meanwhile, they were, cl- they were planning what became known as, anybody know? Battle the Battle of the Bulge. And all of a sudden, whole divisions of Nazi panzer tanks attacked this one small two-mile stretch of the line. There were barely a few hundred American soldiers sort of positioned there. They ran through them. Whoever wasn't killed was taken as POWs. Mass chaos. Okay? A, a whole story. There's actually a book that he gave me. If anybody wants to borrow it, you can, you know, it's not for base matters reading, um, that tells this story that he, his daughter actually gave me. And it's an amazing story. And, um, and Bemet, I mean, the Nazis almost turned back the tide of the war. General George Patton saved the day. It's a whole long story. Tens of thousands of American soldiers were killed. In the end, sort of, it was one of the greatest tank battles of World War II. But in the course of this madness, nobody knew what happened to anybody. Most of his, his entire unit was either murdered or they were taken POWs. They ended up as POWs in a prisoner of war camp under the Nazis until the end of the war. Uh, a number of them were taken and massacred, and that became its own story. And he just assumed that all of them were dead. They assumed that he was dead. Because nobody knew. It's not like they sent a message to everybody like he was taken to a medevac. He was there, and then he wasn't. So he probably got killed in the battle. About uh, 20 years later, 25 years later, he's living in Florida, and he's reading a paper, and he sees that there's a reunion of, the, of his unit, that there are people who survived his unit. And so he walks into this, into this reunion because he wants to see who's still around and people pass out looking. They can't believe he's alive. They were sure he was dead. They had memorials for him. Now, why do I tell you this whole story? This guy was saved by a pair of boots. Like on the one hand, which is, I guess, part of the story of Yosef, like you're sitting there in a foxhole and your feet are frostbitten and you're cursing your luck that you have big feet and you're cursing your luck that you couldn't get the right boots and you're cursing your luck that, that, you're gonna, that, that you're in pain. 
and then that it forces you to leave your unit. And Mimal Akash Baruchu created with you with big feet, because one day those big feet are going to save your life. But there's another question that comes out of the story, and this is the one that fascinates me. He says to me when he's telling me the story, right? He's in Germany. He's on this, you know, on these patrols and on this guard duty and whatever else he was doing there. And he says, I'm trying to figure out who I am. Am I American? Am I German? Am I a Jewish German, a Jewish American, an American Jew, a German Jew? Who exactly am I? And he was trying to practice. You know, he had an advantage because if the Germans would overrun them on some level, he spoke perfect German. On the other hand, he spoke German with, uh, he spoke English with a very German accent. And sometimes, you know, if, if you were in a Jeep heading back to base, it was known that there were Nazis who disguised themselves as American soldiers. There was a whole, Otto Scorsese created this whole unit of Nazis that were trained to be like Americans so that they could infiltrate American lines. And they would often stop you and try to figure out, are you really an American soldier or are you masquerading? Are you really a Nazi? So they would ask you all sorts of questions. You know, who was the second page pitcher for the Yankees and did they win the World Series? And he's a German Jewish kid. He has no idea. He doesn't know baseball. He doesn't know anything. And he speaks perfect German and he sounds like a German. So he says to himself, if the Americans catch me when I'm not with my guys, they'll think I'm a German. They'll kill me. If the Germans catch me, they'll think I'm a Jew. They'll kill me. Who am I? So put all this in the back of your head, okay? And, and, and let's take a look at this. First of all, I want you to understand, most of life is about perspective. You know? Are my feet a curse or are they a blessing? <clears throat> Who am I really, right? Now, there is, there's a lot to be unpacked in this parasha, but I want to share with you one particular story, okay? And this is the story of Yaakov's death. Yaakov is on his deathbed. This is, by the way, the first time in the Gemara, in, in the Torah, that we see a person... Nope. Nope. Avram dies. Yitzchak dies. What happens here that hasn't happened before? Correct. Yaakov is the first person. The Medrash says Yaakov is the first person who ever got sick. But again, uh, my opinion, Agadah and Medrash is not meant to be taken literally. There's a message here, right? Certainly it's the first person in the Torah. By the way, it's Gemara that says, like, how did a person, how, what, what does that mean the person didn't get sick? So the Gemara says, that was very simple. People didn't get sick. When it was time to die, they sneezed and they dropped dead. Okay? That's a Gemara. Right? Not only that, it's related to the fact, how are we created? How did Hashem actually cause this mound of flesh, this physical object to become a human being? Anybody remember the Pasuk? Vayipach be'apav nishmat chayim. Hashem blew into our noses the breath of life. That's, we're mimicking that when we blow so far. So therefore, when you ended your life, the breath came out. And that's why, by the way, when you see a person sneezing, what do you say? God bless you. Right? Gesund. Okay? In fact, in Hebrew, what do we say? Labriut. So that's actually a mistake. I learned this once from an Iraqi Jew. La in Arabic means no. So, so and, 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 and it's related to the Hebrew. It actually comes from Aramaic as well. So they used to say, you don't say labriut because that means no health. You say libriut, it should be towards good health. It should be your process of getting healthy. Okay. So Yaakov's on his deathbed, he's getting sick. And Chazal say that this was a gift that Hashem gave Yaakov because the fact that he was sick 
meant that he had a chance to say goodbye. And for Yaakov especially, that was pretty important because he didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Right? Yosef was taken from him, never had a chance to say goodbye. So Yosef comes to see him. Okay? And, 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 Yaakov is 147, he lives 17 years in Egypt. What do you notice? First question. I'll read this again. What do you notice? Why is it switch Yaakov and Yisrael? Yaakov lived in Egypt, Yisrael is about to die. Same person. By the way, once Avram is named Avraham, there's even Allah, you're not supposed to call him Avram, unless you're giving a shear about this. He is never called Avram again. Yitzchak, Yitzchak only has one name. So he never needs to get called again. Yaakov has two names to stay with him forever. Okay. So Israel is now going to die. Right? <laughs> she calls Yosef. And he says, I want you to swear to me. I want you to what? Bury me, in Bury me in Eretz Israel. Very powerful. This is the first instance in the Torah where a Jew, first instance in history, where a Jew is longing for Eretz Israel. He's yearning for Eretz Israel. He wants to be buried in Eretz Israel. You do not find this anywhere else. Yitzchak is told by Akash Baruch not to leave. Avram comes but never says he yearns for Eretz Israel. Okay. Right? And Yisrael bows to him, whatever that means, it's part of this contract they made. And after this, So now they tell Yosef, your father's sick. So I don't understand. It says Yosef is about to, Yaakov's about to die. But he's not sick. So up until then, nobody ever got sick. You just figured out you were going to die. Okay. So Yosef takes his two sons, Menashe and Ephraim. Ask me another question. Pardon? No, they were born Menashe and Ephraim. But the reason you're thinking that is because we say Ephraim and Menashe, and that's a whole part of the story that we're not going to get to. It's originally the order, but it's a good point. Nope. Come on, ask me an obvious question. Takes his two sons with him, Menashe and Ephraim. See, this is the problem. We're so used to seeing, we don't see it anymore. Who are Yosef's two sons? Who are Yosef's two sons? Who are Yosef's two sons? No. Who are Yosef's two sons? What are their names? Menashe and Ephraim. Do we know this already? No. So it says, Yoke. Sure we do. He has two sons. He names them. He has Menashe, Kinashani, Elohim, Beretzoni. He has Ephraim, Kifrani, Elohim, because Hashem made me fruitful in the land of, 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 of Egypt. We know who they are. They've already been named. He takes his two sons. Why does that tell me their names? Okay. Same thing. Who is this? Yaakov or Israel? And he sits up. And then he says to Yaakov, he says, Now he's back to Yaakov. Kel Shakai, that's one of the names of Hashem, Nirayalai Beluz, Beretz Kanan, He recounts to Yosef the original promise that he received that said, right? Now, this is the original promise that Yaakov received, and it was repeated to him. 
He received it when he was in Beitel going down. It was repeated to him. He's given the Bechorah, he's given the Bechira. Why is he repeating this to Yosef here? If you ask my kids where I learned in yeshiva, they will tell you. If you ask my kids where I was in the army, they will tell you. If you ask my kids where my family comes from in Poland, they will tell you. It's not because I sat them one day down and gave them a history lesson. It's because they're my kids and they know me. This is one of the most significant events of Yaakov's life. Yosef knows about this bracha. So why is, ya- why is Yaakov repeating this here? Okay. Now these two sons of yours, this is Pasuk Hay, who were born to you in Egypt, those two sons that were born to you in Egypt, they're for me. By the way, what does this mean? On a practical level, I know. What does that mean? They're for me. They're my grandchildren. Of course, they're for me. Pardon? Kiruven v'Shimon Yuli. What does that mean? Practically, they're going to be shvatim. They're not the next generation. They've been jumped up. Right? <coughs> it's going to be Ruven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Menashe, and Ephraim. By the way, why are Menashe and Ephraim made shvatim? What other halacha does this remind us of? What is the status of Yosef? Yosef is the Bechor. Bechor Shoro Hadalo. That's the bracha that Moshe gives Yosef at, 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 at the end of his life. He's the Bechor. What special thing does the Bechor get? He gets kefal, he gets a devil portion. Whether that applies today is an interesting question. So if you're not a Bechor, don't get too nervous, but okay. This is the double portion of Yosef. Two of his children, they become the Shvatim. Ephraim, Menashe, Kiruven, Vishimon, Yuli. Okay. Fanny Bivoi and Rachel died and I buried her and I feel bad about it. Fight, okay? And this is all great. And then comes Pasuk Chet. Now it gets bizarre. Fayar Yisrael et Bnei Yosef Fayomel mi Yosef sees, Yaakov sees, actually Yisrael sees Yosef's kids and says, who are these? Okay, ask me an obvious question. Pardon? Okay, first of all, he already mentions them. He says, Menashe Ephraim, Kiruvem Shibon Yuli. So we've already mentioned them. So what does it mean, who are these? Second of all, they're his grandchildren. What does it mean, Mi Ela? So this is a crazy idea. And so on and so forth. Now we could go on, but we're going to stop here. So what is going on here? How can on the one hand, the pastor tell me, Ephraim Venashe, Kiruvein Vishimon Yuli, he names them, he knows who they are, and three Pesachim later, Mi'ela, who are these? So I'm going to share with you two ideas. This is such a great example of the balance of Pshat and Drush. Pshat and Drush sometimes can complement each other, and sometimes they can diverge. So what is the Pshat? In order to understand the pshat, we have to go back to last week's parsha. Now, what I'm going to say to you now is a very dangerous thing to say. Because you may misinterpret what I'm saying as some sort of, God forbid, critique of Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu was the Isha Emet. He was a Navi. He was the father of the Shvatid. He fought Sarosh Al-Isav. We don't even know what that means. And he bounced on Avram Avinu's knee. Nobody should misinterpret. This is Yaakov Avinu. Rav Avigdor Nevinsal likes to say, like, you know, you have to, on the one hand, look at the story. Nechama Leibovich used to talk about this all the time. You have to look at the stories and, and imagine that they're human beings. 
and look at them like we look at ourselves and say, what would I do and how do I understand? Get inside their heads. And once you've done that and you learn something, you've got to take a step back and remember, okay, but these were gedolei ador. These were giants. And that balance is a difficult balance. So I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm about to say. But listen to this. This is unbelievable. This is the kind of thing you read through and you miss. Most powerful moment in last week's parasha. Probably one of the most powerful moments in the entire Torah is somebody. When they meet up, right? Did everybody guess that? Okay. What happens when they meet up? So Yosef sends Agalot, they send the wagons, the wagons sometimes, whole discussion, why do the wagons sort of tell them things are okay? It's a, okay. And Vayesor Yosef Merkavto, Vayali Krat Yisrael Aviv, Yisrael, Goshna. They bring Yaakov in wagons down from, from Israel to Goshen. Goshen, by the way, may be a portion that belongs to the Jewish people to this day. That's a whole fascinating discussion. According to Ramban, Goshen was given to Sarah by Paro as a result of that whole story. And that's why Yosef wants them to live in Goshen to establish their ownership. And that's a whole interesting debate of greater Israel all the way down to Egypt. I'm not personally thinking we should do that, but it's an interesting idea, right? So, Vayesor Yosef Merkavto, right? Yosef harnesses up his chariot. Vayalikrat Yisrael Aviv. And he goes up to Yisrael, his father. Not Yaakov, Yisrael, okay? And he appears to him. And he falls on his shoulders and he begins to cry. What is the obvious question here? Rashi makes this famous. Who's crying? It says he cries on his shoulders. Who's crying? So what does Rashi say? Anybody remember? Yosef. Yosef is crying. What's Yaakov doing? Saying Shema. Unbelievable Rashi. Yaakov sees Yosef. Hasn't seen him in 22 years. His long lost son. Right? And what does he do? Myrev! Myrev! Like, a little strange. So, okay. Kriya Shema is much deeper than that. It's, it's about capturing that moment and realizing, I don't want this just to be about me. I want to experience, you know, I was once, um, I was once, I was once at a smicha ceremony. And uh, a fellow was given ordination. Uh, someone I'm close to uh, got an honorary um, uh, doctorate and asked me to come, whatever. So I went. And it turned out to be the rabbinical ordination ceremony for um, the conservative movement in Israel on the Beis Shechter. And I think, you know, you could debate, you know, theology and discussion, but uh, this should be our biggest problem, that we have more people who want to teach Torah. So I have an open mind to these things, that we may disagree halachli on some issues. But wonderful, the person's living in Israel, his kids go to the army, he wants to serve the Jewish people, great. And, uh, you know, and this was like the first rabbi ordained by the conservative movement in Israel, it was like a big deal. And they, then this guy gets up and he makes a speech. And he thanks the rector, and he thanks his family, and whatever. And he makes an interesting speech, and he gives a thought, whatever. And I remember sitting there saying, wow, like, what did he forget? Like, who do you thank? Thank Kosh Baruch You know? I was, just at a, um, I was just at a wedding on Sunday of an alumni. The Golda Rebbe, right? Corey Gold. Unbelievable. And it was really, I have to say, I had to do somersaults to make this wedding. I could have flown home on Thursday, been home for Shabbos, been out of quarantine, two days in Shiva. I thought, I'm already in America. He's getting, how can I not go? And although maybe I shouldn't say this, but, um, you know, they intend to live here. And, you know, a lot of their friends are here. And I said to him, wow, I'm surprised you're getting married there. He said to me such a holy thing. He said, look, I know how tough this is for my parents. So the least we could do is have the wedding there. 
It turned out to be a bracha because with everything going on with Corona, his parents might not have made the wedding. So Mama Shakash Baruch guided him. And he stood up and spoke at the Tish, like for a few minutes. And he said, you know, I, I just have so much Akar Satov. He thanked his parents. He thanked everybody for coming. He talked about the fact that, you know, you have to be grateful for everything and you never know what's coming. And whatever he said, you can ask him. And at the end, he said, most of all, I want to thank Akash Baruch That's what you should do. That's what Yaakov was doing. Akash Baruch runs the world. It's a gift. Okay? It's a gift. And sometimes it's hard for us to thank Akash Baruch I thank Akash Baruch that, I don't know, boys skip night seder. Because there's something to learn and we can do something. It's all from Akash Baruch We have to figure out what to do with it. Okay. I thank Akash Baruch that I got sick. I thank Akash Baruch that I got a car accident. Everything. Hard to do. Okay. Then comes the most amazing part. Vayomer Yisrael al Yosef. Yisrael speaks to Yosef. He hasn't spoken to him in 22 years. Amuta apam. I can die now. Now that I've seen you and I know your life. What a powerful moment. What a powerful moment. What does Yosef say back to Yaakov? Do you know? Aiden, do you know what Yosef says back to Yaakov, to Israel? You know why you don't know? Listen to this. It's unbelievable. Fayomel Yosef el Echav. Ve'el Beit Aviv. E'elev ha'agida leparo. V'omra alav achai u'beit avi asher ba'aretz k'nan ba'o elai. So he says to his brothers, okay, I'm going to go tell Paro that we're here. And then he starts to what you should say and how we're going to do it. He doesn't say anything back to Yaakov. He doesn't speak to Yaakov. And I'm looking at this. I never noticed this before. So I start looking. He doesn't speak to Yaakov. They do not have a conversation in the Torah. Until this moment. When Yosef brings his sons to Yaakov before he dies. So what's pshat here? And again, this is only pshat. There's got to be a different way of looking at this, which is drush. But first you've got to do pshat. What if? What if? What if Yosef is afraid to talk to Yaakov? Because what is Yosef's ultimate question? Where were you? What happened? How many questions must Yosef have had over the last 17 years? Which not coincidentally is the same number of years that Yosef was alive when he was sold. But I'll leave you to think about that. Was Yaakov in on it? You know, we talked about this once. Avram has two sons. Ishmael and Yitzchak. Ishmael gets, he gets sent away. He doesn't stay in the club. Yitzchak has two sons, Yaakov and Esav. And Esav, he doesn't stay in the club. So Yaakov has a bunch of sons and there's a conflict. Maybe Yaakov has to decide who stays. Maybe Yaakov is in on this. Now, Yosef did some things that weren't great, but he didn't deserve to be thrown into a pit. He deserved to be sold as a slave. But maybe Yaakov wasn't in on it. Well, if Yaakov isn't in on it, then what's he going to do? He's going to come looking for him. He's going to tell the brothers they did a terrible thing. Right? Was Yaakov in on it or not? Whole discussion. Rav Yol Binun has an amazing article on this. Yehuda, in the beginning of Parashat Vayigash, says, you know, Ach Tarof Taraf Yosef, I had a brother and he was killed and whatever, he was eaten by an animal. And maybe Yosef at that, person, at that point suddenly realizes maybe Yaakov didn't know. 
This is the first time Yosef has ever heard that they concocted this story that he was destroyed by an animal. Yosef didn't know that. And that's the moment that Yosef finally can no longer hold himself in. He says, Ani Yosef, I hold Avichai. You want to tell me my father's alive? Maybe my father was in it? So now Yaakov is here. Why doesn't he ask him? Maybe he's afraid of the answer. Now, if you're not asking Yaakov this basic question, and you're keeping all this inside, what about Yaakov? What's Yaakov thinking? How come Yosef isn't talking to me? Maybe Yosef... I can't even fill the sentence. Because Yosef is known as Yosef Atzadik. You're going to say Yosef is angry. You're going to say Yosef is... I don't know. But at least Pshat in the Pasuk, there is a conversation that needs to happen that doesn't happen. Now, if that's true, if that conversation didn't happen, then what would be the inevitable result? They would stop talking. Because the pain would not get better, right? Silence like, come on, Bacchus, a cancer grows, right? Pshat in Shimon and Gavriel, right? Pshat. Like, when you have stuff, we're going to learn this in the Rambam. Right? Paratal, the Rambam says, when a person has to go to the bathroom, la locha, he has to stop what he's doing, go to the bathroom. Because you have to let go of your stuff. They don't let go of their stuff. In fact, it's so bad, and again, this is only pshat, it's so bad, that when Yosef finally comes and brings his sons, Yaakov knows that Yosef has two sons, Menashe and Ephraim. He has no relationship with them. He doesn't know who they are. There's something missing here. What a painful, you know, everybody likes to tell the story of Yosef as the story with a good ending. They get together, Yosef forgives them, they all hug and kiss and make up and yishtabach shemo. It's very dangerous to do that. Because that means that there's no long-term consequence, other than 200 years of slavery, right, to the fact that they threw him in a pit. But that's not Emmas. If you throw your brother in a pit, you don't, you don't get to crawl out of that so easily. If you can sit and eat lunch when your brother, right, Elenu, Velo Shamanu, we didn't hear his begs, his cries, you don't just fix that. This is a mess. And you know where you really see this? You see this at the end of this week's parsha. Because at the end of this week's parsha, Yaakov dies. And what happens when Yaakov dies? We don't have time to look at the psukim and analyze them. But what, anybody remember this? The brothers come to Yosef. And they say what? you remember this? Your father, commanded you Your father told us that you have to, whatever, forgive us. Now, the Torah doesn't tell us there was ever such a conversation. And there's a big debate amongst the Rishonim. So here I do allow myself to say that this could be MS. Because some of the Rishonim say that the brothers made this up. Because they were terrified of Yosef. By the way, what does Yosef do? He cries. Now what should you do at this moment? You should say to them, I love you. And don't sweat it. That dialogue never happens. They never talk about this. It's like, not just an elephant, it's a herd of elephants in the room. And there will forever be that pain. They had an opportunity to open up that box and they let it pass. And you don't always get to go and open up that box again. And I want to tell you on a deep level, we're going to learn this in the Rambam. The Rambam in Perik Vav, of Hilchot Deot, just to quote it for you. The Rambam talks about, um, one second, 
apologize. Second. If somebody made a terrible mistake with you, did a terrible thing to you, he doesn't want to tell him off. He doesn't want to say anything. He's afraid to tell him off. Maybe you think that this guy can't handle it. Maybe he's a perfect guy. A guy went out, I don't know, let's take a random example. A guy, uh, middle of the night said he went to a movie. <laughs> Crazy, right? Okay. But you get, you know... He's a six-year-old. He's, 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 he's not there yet. He doesn't understand what he's missing. So you don't want to tell him off. Because he's not ready. He doesn't understand. He's learning so much. And I don't say this facetiously. I mean, there could be a guy who did this, but for him, it's amazing all the other time he learns. He came to Israel for a year. He's learning Torah and yeshiva. Okay, so one night he went to a movie. It's not the end of the world. And so you decide, you know what? I'm not going to give him strong muster. If he's mochel in belibo, if he forgives him, and he doesn't hold it against him, and he doesn't give him tochacha, right? He's a chassid. Now the Ramam talked about this. He's not a chacham, he's a chassid. He took an extreme position. He's allowed to do that if he can really get out of him. Okay. Why is that not balanced? Why is that chassidut? I'll tell you why. Because if you decide to do that, as a chassid, what it means is you don't want to hurt the guy. It's just easier than risking embarrassment, pain, struggle. It's the easier way out. I'll let it go. I won't be upset about it. Who suffers from that decision? You don't suffer from that decision. Much easier for you. Who suffers from that decision? He does. Because you've denied him the opportunity to think about a mistake that he made, which is a lot more work. I wonder if that's what happens here. By the way, where does Yosef learn this from? Anybody know? If I can't find this pasuk in a hurry, I'll just quote it to you by pad, but it's much better to read it inside. In Parshavich, where does he learn that sometimes, oh, thank you. Where does he learn that sometimes, um, where does he learn that sometimes you just don't say? Anybody know? Who said that? Excellent. Where's the Pasuk? Okay. Um, it's in Vayishlach. Um, Rachel dies. Rachel dies. And Reuven does something unkosher. He switches the beds. Remember the story? Right? It's not clear what happens there. The Gemara says, like, he didn't sleep with Bilhah. He took... Billa's bed. It's like you going into your parents' bedroom and deciding the bed should be together. It's inappropriate for a kid to do something like that. Whatever happens. Reuven is furious. Reuven is upset. Reuven sees that his mother is the hated wife in his perception because she certainly feels she's hated. And, 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 and Rachel is dead now. So she should be the next one. And yet he takes Rachel's shifcha, Billa. So he's furious. He switches the beds. It says, now that's, this, is, this is unbelievable. Like you don't just pass that up. It says, Vayishma Yaakov. Now those of you who know how to lay know that there's two dots, one on top of the other, which is the end of a pasuk. Right? Sof pasuk. And there's an etnachta, which is an upside down bell, which is the middle of a pasuk. So there's an etnach, Vayishma Yaakov. 
Etnachta, middle of the Pasuk. And then, right, there's a stuma, there's a break. And the next Pasuk is Vayu Bnei Yaakov Shnei Masar. And it begins to list the sons of Yaakov. So the Mepharshim said, like, what's going on here? Right? The Gras says that anytime you find a break in a line like that, it means somebody's crying. But it's like it makes no sense. Grammatically, it makes no sense. Whenever a sentence makes no grammatic sense, the Torah is trying to tell you something. Yaakov hears what happened, and he understands that if he says something at this point, this is not me, this is Rav Soloveitchik. I heard this many years ago in a drush from Rav Riskin. Yaakov instinctively understands that if he says anything to Ruven, he'll lose one of his sons. His son is one foot out the door. So he doesn't say anything. He lets it go. And that's why, Vayu Bnei Yaakov Shnei Twelve sons remained around the table. But he pays a price for this. Because Reuven loses the opportunity to receive tochacha, to learn from his mistake and to become better. And that moment is the moment when Reuven begins losing his leadership. <coughs> that simple. So Yosef instinctively understands this, never speaks to Yaakov. Yaakov never speaks to Yosef. They don't talk about this again. Mi Eile. Who are these? So sad. So challenging. One of the lessons from Yosef, you have to talk. You have to share. We're going to learn this eventually in Hilchos Deus. One more thing I want to share with you, and then we'll stop. There is another way to look at this, and this is drush. It's not pshat, but it's definitely drush. Right? What does it mean that Yaakov is asking, who are these boys? Right? Rashi, you know what, we'll skip the... Rashi here is an amazing Rashi. Rashi says... Rashi says in... Do you like that sound? Rashi says in Parak Memchet. It took years to develop that sound. He says, Right? Yaakov, before Yaakov says, Mi Eila, he has this moment. Now, one opinion is he loses this moment, and one opinion is this is the last moment. That from Ephraim, from Shevet Ephraim, there are three individuals mentioned here. Achav, Yeravam, right, and Yehu. We're not going to get into who all three were. They're all very negative characters. And they all led the Jewish people astray in idolatry. And they let kingship get carried away. Let's just talk about um, Yeravam. Yeravam was um, the one who led the famous rebellion of the ten tribes. He split the Jewish people. He destroyed the unity of the Jewish people. He didn't want the Jewish people to go up to the ten tribes, to go up to the base of Middash, because then it would be clear that he wasn't the king. Because on Harabite, only a melech from Malchus based David can sit down, and everybody knew that. So he wouldn't be able to sit down. It would come, sort of everybody would be reminded he's not the real king. So he made agalim, he made calf, golden calves at the gates, you know, at the borders, and led the Jews back to Avodah They didn't need the base of Middash anymore. Putting aside all the deeper messages of what happened there, and what's literal and what's allegorical, right? This is not good. This is a person who's going to lead the Jewish people astray. Who is this? Who are these kids? Yosef marries Asnat Bat Petifera. He's Egyptian. His kids, by the way, are named for how much he appreciates being Hashem made me fruitful. I'm successful in Egypt. The guy gets up at the bris and says, I want to thank you all and I, I'm so grateful that my hedge fund is working and I'm a multi-millionaire and we're going we're gonna to donate $100 million to build an aquarium. Chveisnisht, right? He's Egyptian. 
Menashe, kinashani elokim Hashem, right? I, I, I forgot my pain. I'm not living in the past. So I'm an Egyptian, right? What is the contrast between Yaakov and Yisrael? Yaakov is the downtrodden. And we don't have time to do this. If you look in the parsha, every time it says Yaakov, it carries the message that Yaakov is seeing Yosef as an Egyptian, that he's down into Galut. Yisrael is the person who wants to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. He's the person who says, this is not the end of the line. Mi Eile, Ephraim and Yuli. Are they Jewish Egyptians or Egyptian Jews? You know, I remember the day that I graduated officer's course. Some of you have heard it was quite a long journey for me. So you can imagine the day you finish officer's course is, is a really powerful day. Like you made it. You've already got the bars on your shoulders, but they put like this tape over it so that they can rip them off in the ceremony. And I was given this honor, whatever, I got to get my bars from, uh, from um, uh, Moshe Vachetzi, the, the, the chief of staff of the Israeli army, Moshe Levi. Before they do the actual tekas, they line up all the soldiers. They have a couple of ceremonies that you do just the unit, without all the family watching and everything. And the Rasar comes, and he went, the Rasar is the base uh, sergeant major. He's responsible for discipline, responsible for, everybody has to wear their beret. So he wants to check you up one last time. He's been training you to march and do everything right for this ceremony for two days now. And he wants to make sure that everybody spits and polish. You don't get on the parade ground, graduating officer's course, if your boots aren't shined. Right? If your belt buckle uh, doesn't, you know, if it doesn't shine. If, if, you're, if you're, your shirt is creased. I mean, unbelievable. And, um, and he notices that my tzitzis are out. Now, I told you once, in the army, I decided to wear my tzitzis out, even though I wear them around my belt, because I felt like I was in an extreme, I was a little in an off-balance place, and I wanted people to, because oh, this guy's from, we're going to leave him alone. So he didn't like that my tzitzis were out. Now, back then, it was very rare for the T guy to graduate officer's course. It just didn't happen. Today, it's more common, right? The Hesder unit was against guys, Rav Lichtenstein was vehemently against guys going to officer's course. Why he allowed me to go is an interesting question for another time. And so I was the only T guy there. And they'd certainly never see a guy with his tzitzis out in the officer's course base, graduating officer's course. So he's like, looks at this, and he says, tuck those in, put those in, they have to understand. The sergeant major can decide that you're not going on the parade ground. He can't stop you getting your bars, but he can say, you're not going on, that's it. They won't see you, your parents won't see you, whatever. He can tell you're staying for Shabbos, you're supposed to get out for Shabbos, he can say, no, you're gonna stay here, you're gonna do whatever. He's, he's, he's God. And he tells you to put your tzitzis in, right? And then he walks off, Okay? He sees me, you know, and I start thinking about this. This is my last day as an officer. And I, you know, I endured. I mean, don't think, you know, it's all rosy colored, like, you know, you're in the Israeli army, everybody's learning Gemara. I ate a lot of flack for having a big kippah and for wearing tzitzes and for not eating with the guy's treif and all sorts of other things. And um, had to wake up early to daven so that I wouldn't miss morning inspection. And I have this moment. This is an important principle. I'm graduating officer's course as a Jewish officer in a Jewish army. I'm going to put my tzitzis in? On the other hand, like, what's the big deal? It's not a halacha, I think, to wear your tzitzis out. And the truth is, I know that when I'm done with the army, I'm probably going to put it back in, right? Uh, didn't for a while, and then my wife said, you know, if you're going to wear your tzitzis out, you have to clean them all the time. You can't wear your tzitzis out if they're dirty. So I had a choice of washing my tzitzis every day or tucking them around my belt. I went for the belt. But... Uh, <laughs> I decided that I wasn't an Israeli Jew. I was a Jewish Israeli. I'm sorry, I wasn't a Jewish Israeli, I was an Israeli Jew. If you're an American Jew, 
It means that what's important to you is that you're Jew. You happen to be an American. You could be a French Jew. You could be a Saudi Jew. If, if you're a Jewish American, then what's important to you is that you're an American. You have to be a Jewish American. You could be Italian American. What's important is you're an American. What's really important to you? That's what Yaakov was asking. Who are you? Is this your goal? Are you settling the Jews in Goshen so that you can become prosperous and build the Jewish people and become the next great empire? Or is this just a pit stop on something that's much more important? Like, what's our goal? We've now arrived at the end of the first stage of the creation of the Jewish people, which is the stage of role models. We don't start with the Jewish people, we start with the Jewish family. And the Torah doesn't tell us how to behave yet. There's very little in Sefer Breshit. There's almost no mitzvah. It just gives us role models. I'm going to tell you the story of Avram. Learn from this fellow, because we will learn far more. Your children one day will learn far more from what you do than they ever will from what you say. So we have role models. Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah, Yosef, Menashe, and Ephraim, Yehuda. Now it's all going to change. Now we're ready to become a Jewish people. And one of the last messages is who am I and where do I belong? We're halfway through the year. Who are we? Where do we belong? Is this base Medrash just a pit stop? Is it just, you know, an opportunity to have a good time? Is it like an interesting way to get some intellectual journey? Or do I discover that this is where the secret of life is? You know? Something to think about. Parshat Vayechi. Food for thought, Rabosai. Stop here.